0: Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of the Elite Investing Show. Today I had Mr. Ivan Ilan, who's a certified fund specialist and a wealth manager and a financial advisor too. We had a wonderful discussion on capitalism and economics. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Alright, so Mr. Ivan, did I get that right? Yes, Ivan Ilan. Ivan Ilan. So
0: tell the audience about yourself, who you are, where you come from, and what you're about.
1: Um, well, I uh, I started investing when I was 13 years old. I uh, had a college fund that I learned about from my parents, and um, I approached them and said, I think I can do a better job than what you're doing. You know, even though my dad was a rocket scientist, I think that. You know, you know, people can be really smart in their profession. It doesn't mean that they're smart at everything. And um, you know, so because my grandfather was the undersecretary of the treasury of uh, the Castro revolutionary government, by the time I was 10 years old, I heard about Che Guevara putting a gun to his head to sign economic policy he didn't agree with. And uh, and I was always interested in this thing called economics. What is this? Thing? And Grandpa was willing to die for it. it must be really important. Yeah. Um, and so I had a really early interest in it. So I used to, you know, uh, show up. Uh, I spent a summer with my grandfather in Miami. It's as close to, to Cuba as he could be as an exile. And so when um, I I'd order all these uh, annual reports and financial statements and all these annual reports, I've always come. In. And would make observations, and he would tell me, uh, "Oh, yeah, that's that's insightful," or "No, nah, that doesn't uh, that doesn't make sense." So by the time I was thirteen, I had really felt like I got a master's degree in economics, <laughs> and uh, so everything else is gravy ever since. <laughs> yeah. no, I ended up going to business school at Boston College, got a degree in philosophy, a degree in. Uh, finance, uh, separate degrees. And then uh, right after uh, Boston College, I started at uh, Nuveen Investments, which uh, to this day is one of the largest in, uh, investment managers focused on municipal bonds. And they have a lot of closed-end funds that they've launched over the decades and open-ended mutual funds <sighs> and several companies. So I um, had a really great entry. Uh, arena, uh, from a professional standpoint. And uh, after I worked there four years, I started my first company, Ming Consulting. um, I was 26. And uh, that was an investment banking consultancy, where I essentially was a hired gun for companies looking to raise capital, their different financial products. And, uh, and so really had a product development expertise, but also a uh, distribution expertise. I did that for several years until I realized that um, these financial products, by and large, mostly just make money for big companies. And if they are misused, or worse, abused in the marketplace, investors really (laughs) really (laughs) lose out. And so um, I just wanted to extricate myself from the product distribution machine, Wall Street machine, and I started uh, my firm 14 years ago, and, um, and the focus of that has really been, um, today, it's totally holistic uh, asset and liability management. Uh, we have our own global macro strategies that we run for our clients who invest with us. Uh, so we're precise about how we allocate capital across the equity markets, the global markets. And then, of course, um, for a lot of our clients who are business owners, they have uh, liabilities they may turn a blind eye towards or recognize. Um, manage, you know, you know these plans, manage those liabilities. And, uh, and also, um, even with uh, employee retention. Type programming uh, because a lot of times people will people more valuable for potential position, and uh, really a lot of things that we can do for business owners to make them more valuable. Usually, it's related to making them a sticky company so that the key is don't run away when there's an acquisition. So, there are programs uh, that can be devised to do that. Uh, so it is a, it's, it's a very diverse practice today. Uh, we're at the core and sort of my personal passion is in the economics and, and macro work, but I'm also a realist and that uh, not taken um, in concert with all the different aspects of financial decision-making. Sometimes you find people focus a lot on their investment portfolio, but they completely have a blind side Towards risks that may pop up, and then if it does pop up and they have no way of adjusting (laughs) in advance, they got to sell all their investments in order to fund that liability. Yeah. So it is you can be the best asset manager, best investor, and then not protect your blind side, and then it ruins everything.
0: And that's what happened in
1: 2008. (laughs) There was probably quite a fair amount of that where people weren't looking at all, and people were feeling good. a good run in the market and uh, you know 2008 was a very special time a very unique time obviously some of the biggest Wall Street behemoths went out of business uh, in the the aftermath of that and um, and I think that's good that's capitalism should be failure Uh, bailouts is a whole other uh, conversation uh, for another time I'm sure (laughs) okay
0: so what do you look for in an investment, if you had to buy, a, if you had to buy stock in a company, what do you what do you look for? what do you look for in the company? What are your
1: investing values? Yeah. So in our uh, investment uh, philosophy, we're, we really stay away from individual securities as a way of um, allocating a portfolio, uh, the global macro work we do is really at um, large uh, segments of the uh of the economy global economy so there may be a a sector for example uh maybe there's a couple of hundred companies within that sector Uh, i'm much more interested in having exposure to the sector if i have a thesis that believes that there's going to be some good total return from that sector relative to other sectors or other market segments over the next two to three years Um, I'd rather have that kind of exposure than an individual security exposure, which with it comes individual corporate risk that is very, very hard to diversify away when you own at the individual corporate um, level because one bad accounting error, one bad quarter, and then all of a sudden, it's like the world is over for that company. And so I'd rather uh, play the law of averages uh, when it comes to an investment thesis and um, and work with market segments uh, instead of individual companies. So that's kind of just a little background uh, for that. But when it comes to um, I- investment selection or why you're allocating capital towards a certain investment, uh, to me, uh, the number one most important thing that defines whether you're investing, in a particular uh, investment is your time frame. Uh, Your time horizon is by far and away the most important thing and certainly in in most uh, all of our client situations the time frame is quite long. Uh, We have many clients who are either in the accumulation phase or in the distribution phase of their portfolios and if they're in the distribution phase maybe they just retired and they're 60s. Well, statistically, in a a married couple, a 50% chance of one of them living into their 90s. So we're talking about really long time horizons into the future. Um, However, uh, volatility and distributions don't usually mix well. Um, Even when you have um, distributions that are... Routine and regular, uh, it just depends. Here in the US, uh, we have qualified accounts, for example, and the IRS actually will uh, force uh, investors to take out money from their account once they hit 70 and a half. And so by the time you're in your late 80s, that percentage is close to 10 percent, not 10 percent per year that has to be taken out of your IRA account. Well, If your account is down 20-30% because of the market conditions, and then on top of that you have to take out 10%, well, now you've just made irreparable harm to (laughs) and you'll never make that money back. You're basically now on a one-way trip to eating period, which of course creates a lot of risk for someone who needs that money later in life. so I'll stop there because I think I answered five other questions. Except-
0: <laughs> 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 but then, like, to solve that risk, couldn't you simple like, let's say the times are good and you're 62 and you're going to retire in, say, two or three years. Why not just liquidate at 62 when times are good?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, that is such a great, um, such a good perspective and question because I get that question all the time. Um, especially when people are coming right up on their retirement, they've worked hard all their career, maybe 30 year careers. And maybe they've, um, been working for a big company, well-known company, and they have a lot of corporate stock. And so it could be that they want to liquidate, you know, the stock and, and just sit on it and wait until they're retired, uh, in a couple of years. Well, The bigger question is, what's the plan? Because when you go to cash, and this is, I think, one of the more difficult uh, realities for investors. When once you go to cash, it is it is a real capital allocation decision, and it is a very difficult thing to undo. Once you're in cash, it becomes a thing of stasis. There is a gravity to being in cash. And people have a very hard time going back into the market once they're in a cash position. And that um, immobilization, that paralysis, um, one of the interviews I had with Dow Jones many years ago uh, talked about this uh, idea, which is, Panicking clients who want to get out of the market because they're worried about, uh, you know, the market melting down and taking all their money with them—they're actually not rational. Uh, And from a behavioral coaching standpoint, that's really the role of, I think, a good advisor or a good money manager who can really help hold somebody's hand and say, "Well, okay, we can sell out all your positions and get cash, but you have to articulate for me when exactly are we getting back in." so um so every sell strategy has to have a corresponding buy strategy to uh, otherwise you've, you've created this liability of opportunity cost which is massive potentially massive over time and you know you don't have to look that far into history and looking at mutual fund uh, flow data shows us the activity of individual investors um, and, and and the data just looking at uh, the fourth quarter of 2018, pretty dramatic. Uh, I mean, a lot of people um, sold and a lot of people, those same people have yet to buy back into the market and the market in the you know, S&P 500 this year is up double digits so far, even with all yeah. the crazy volatility. So they've missed all of this rebound. And, um, and, and of course, Now it makes it more difficult. Well, what are they? What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for it to go back down to when they first sold. But actually, they're waiting for something more. They're waiting for even a bigger decline than what they sold at, so that they can buy in at something lower because they already sold low. Now they got to buy lower in order to really make this work. But the conviction doesn't work that way, because if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a discipline, you're really off the reservation when you go to all to cash. And this is even true for professional money managers uh, who, who, in fact, have a lot of discretion on their asset allocation and a lot of these target date funds, for example, that have discretion to going to cash. Um, when you analyze the historical track record of these types of strategies, it doesn't look particularly appealing uh, because no one really can time. Uh, these things. The market, yeah. No one can do it. So what you can do though is have a discipline, have a strategy, have a, a rationale as to why you want to buy something. And that's, I think, one of your original questions. What excites you to buy something? And um, and so we're more formulaic. You know, we, we believe in asset diversity. So we believe in owning stocks, bonds, and cash, the three major asset classes. Um, There may be occasion to also own alternative asset classes like commodities or uh, specific long-short strategies or merger arbitrage strategies or those kinds of alternatives. But by and large, we're interested in driving returns based on our asset allocation, first and foremost, and then a very close second is in the sub-asset allocation. So if we're investing in U.S. equities, what kinds of U.S. equities? value versus growth, mid-cap versus small-cap versus large-cap. Are there specific sectors or thematics that are playing out now that offer a good buying opportunity over the next two to three years? And so all of that is a macroeconomic-driven allocation, and and certainly, um, I guess it's considered a top-down approach. some of your listeners know top-down approach versus bottom-up approach. And the bottom-up approach is really all about the individual security.
0: Yeah, and And then going up up to the industry. industry. Yeah,
1: exactly. And the the top-down is the reverse, really making a forecast for the world and and GDP and, and macroeconomic data and then seeing which sectors and then ultimately what companies would benefit from that outlook so so we're, we don't drill all the way down to the individual security selection we kind of stay at that sub-asset level uh and market segment level
0: and then then i have two kind of related questions number one you know, like in september 2018 the s p 500 hit an all-time high so if the clients had sold in september wait till december when the markets crashed when there was a bear market uh, and then they bought in again in January, they would have enjoyed a double-digit gain until now. Then another thing is that in relation to retirement, statistically, I think around 50 to 60 percent of Americans in their 40s haven't had a thousand dollars, even one thousand dollars saved for their retirement. So number one, why are the numbers so dangerous and how do you solve that? What would be your recommended solution to solve that?
1: Uh, for the saving for retirement? Yeah. Yeah, saving for retirement is is an epidemic crisis, uh, certainly in the United States Um, and the social safety net is not so robust to take care of everyone. Um, And you probably know the statistics around um, the deficits in our um, social security and uh, liabilities and they're astronomical and they're only growing every single year. Um, so ultimately, this is a behavioral issue. And so, people who don't uh, begin saving, people that don't enter into some kind of discipline of setting aside money and investing for their future, even as early as their 20s, um, it, it's, a, it's a smart thing to develop that habit because ultimately, you're also living within your means, because finding uh, a way to uh, allocate money for the future. And compounded, uh, well, wh- wh- who was it that said that compounded interest is the fourth wonder of the world, or one of the Albert great Einstein. Countries. Yes. Uh, so it's such a wonderful, uh, uh, incredible power that you really don't see the benefit of until many years down the road. Um, and that's how compounded interest works. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a snowball that gathers more yeah. as it goes on. And most people are so disconnected from that because they, you know, go on Instagram and they see all the cool cars and they see, they and they see the suits and they, you know, the, the watches and then they want to buy these things. And so, okay, this is an instant gratification that a consumer will get. And then certainly in a consumer society, we live in a, in a world where that is encouraged and consumption is encouraged. So there is this very interesting um, strain between the desire of big corporate, which is to um, stoke the fires of consumption, so that people keep spending and then even spend money they don't have going into credit card debt and, and then even defaulting on that debt. That's a calculated risk for an economy to do that. But it does come at a cost, there is a future cost to it. And the future cost is the social safety net won't be adequate enough to take care of all these folks. Now, one of the ways in which this can be taken care of is everybody has to move away from expensive places and move to very inexpensive places. <laughs> but okay. that makes the
0: inexpensive places more expensive because demand pull inflation.
1: Yeah. So you. So for example, here in the United States, everybody's living in on the coasts. You know, by and large, most people live on the coasts. So if you will get to the age of uh, retirement and you didn't save enough, well, you can't live in New York City or Los Angeles anymore now you live, live in Iowa, in Idaho or Iowa or North Dakota you're going live yeah. in a town with 200 people and um and you're going to rent an apartment for $500 a month because you're going to live off of $1500 a month and or 2000 a month and that's the way it is. And so I think a lot of the, the trouble uh, will be handled by uh, human migration. Um, but it will also be very disruptive for the real estate markets in those developed uh, and concentrated cities. Uh, But I also think technology will act as a good offset because here we are talking face-to-face and we're multiple time zones away and we can see each other well. But I think telecommuting is gonna become much more of the norm across every industry. Um, You even see this in medicine and surgery. I mean, surgeons are performing operations remotely through robotics. Um, and they're all the way across the world, and opening up people. And the robot is the actual, it actually has more precision than human hands. So, so I think that there's um, a very healthy offset from technology um, as we do really offset some of these pressures. Because I don't think we can envision what a future world looks like from a technology standpoint, which will uh, take uh, I think a lot of the burden um off of the demand. Um but also that I think gets us into a conversation about universal basic income, which is um also addressing the fact that a lot of jobs are not even gonna be available because of robotics and yeah AI. So so and the World Bank certainly has made those types of forecasts mm-hmm. as well. So, so it's an interesting uh we have an interesting time it well certainly you in your lifetime, me you being um thirty years older than you you have a lot more time ahead of you where you get to see the, um, you know, how this all plays out. Um, but I, I ultimately think it's quite positive. Um, it's just, uh, it's going to be different the way technology shows up and really allows people uh, the freedom to live where they want to live, uh, which also means not having to be in very expensive places. So the need will change.
0: And. Let's say that UBI is actually implemented. I'm just curious, but then wouldn't that just wouldn't that just increase inflation because more people have more money now?
1: It to increase inflation?
0: Yeah, because more people have more money, so the more people want to buy goods, so that would just drive up the price of goods.
1: It's a I I always like your um, philosophical uh, (laughs) questions. Um, (laughs) This is one of those economic philosophical questions because it, it really starts to beg other questions about the nature of consumption when you are on a fixed income and so if someone knows that they don't need to work because they have no skill sets that can add value to the marketplace and instead they're going to devote their life to gardening or being a poet or playing the guitar just walking around the dog um, and thinking about nothing watching television. Um, if, If you get to essentially live life without any constraints, and you're completely free of any obligation, and are getting a paycheck to do that, the notion of consumption changes quite a bit. Because now you don't have to reward yourself for a job well done. You also don't have to comfort yourself with the stresses of employment and work that you don't want to do. So the vast majority of society uh, works in jobs they don't really that like, they can't wait to get out and retire. Yeah. And so let me say, the consumption is really just meant as a way to kind of a salve on the wound of working in jobs that you hate and all of society certainly developed society is in that predicament and um and it's a pretty uh, serious uh state of our society but i think if you evolve away from the demand of everyone having to work then you also remove the demand of consumption because now people will just be happy to eat their healthy basic food maybe from their garden because now they have time to garden and they can, you know, they won't be obese because now they actually have more physical time to walk around instead of sitting at a desk all day, staring at a computer. And that will actually show up in healthcare costs by drastic reduction in healthcare costs because now people are more active and mobile we were designed to be. And so, so I feel like there's a lot of interesting uh, ways in which uh, technology, which is really the core Of human evolution uh, is the use of technology. Uh, You know, going back to the caveman with uh, fire and invention of the wheel, these small technological improvements created big revolutions. And I think we're going to see quite a bit of that over the next 50 years. And then, with the new
0: advent of uh, people in not only the US, but all over the world, progressing socialism against capitalism because people are being poor and they're not having enough income, they're living on the streets. Do you, how do you think that's going to affect financial markets and the global economy as a whole? And another thing is that the $94 trillion proposed Green New Deal and then the proposal of, of you know just raising our student debts, how do you think that's going to affect the economy?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, from a from a capitalism standpoint, I like to believe that that there are people that naturally want to be more, to be better, to improve things, either for themselves or the people around them. And I think that is the ultimate root of a good capitalist someone who is interested in adding value to the world in a way that also brings more value to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently uh, bad about that. Capitalism is a good thing. um, That capitalism isn't greed. It's interesting how I think popular um, society has tried to equate greed and capitalism They're so very different. Greed is really about having more than your fair share, more than the fair exchange of the value you've added. And look at a society like Japan. Japan is certainly a capitalistic society. However, if you measure the CEO pay on average, oh, my automatic lights go off. If you measure the CEO pay, of a a Japanese CEO to that of an American CEO, on average, the Japanese CEO has earnings about 10 to 20 times that of the average worker in their company. Okay, so CEO, it would make sense that they are making more money, they have more decisions, they're overseeing a lot of things. So that seems to be somewhat fair. However, here in the United States, it's around 200 times that of the average worker. So it's a significant multiple of, of, of what we see in other capitalist societies. And, um, and certainly people regard Japan and other nations as capitalists. So we in the United States have something that's beyond capitalism um, because capitalism certainly works. This is something that's becoming egregious and something obviously that is part of the income inequality and the wealth inequality. And you don't have to make 200 times that of your average worker to have a very wealthy existence and feel like, you know, you've really accomplished something. Somebody that's worth 50 million versus 500 million, you know, there's not a, I mean, yes, okay, maybe you can have a different kind of plane at 500 million, but you can still pretty much fly private at 50 million, you know, whether it's flex jets or something like that. You know, so, so lifestyle is still really good for for a certain amount of wealth. And I think that's where greed and capitalism have to be really disintermediated from one another so that people can, can really ask these questions in a more fair way. And obviously taxation, which is your second point, is going to be a big tool uh, to be able to manage out of this inequality and i don't think that's a problem um you know certainly in the united states we've had tax rates at 90 percent on income tax and 90 yeah. percent on capital gains as well in the past so okay. we've had very very high income tax rates in the past and of course they've come way down um and even if you look and compare at you know norway to the united states obviously norway is a very different kind of an economy but still developed nation, you can compare them and you can see that the average tax that's paid at a certain level of income, middle class income in Norway, you get a lot of benefits, a lot of paid time off from of the government, a lot of support from the government, whole uh, all your health care is taken care of. And the statistic is that they're paying around 1% more in total taxes. So, so there's I think a big misconception of, uh, of that it takes a lot of extra taxation. In order to get a lot of more a lot more benefit out of the system, I think the system has a lot of inefficiency baked into it in the United States, and that's quite apparent when you look at um, all kinds of government contracts, where you see you know four thousand dollar toilet toilet bowls. And, uh, I was reading something on Bloomberg this morning a forty six hundred dollar uh, three inch pin for some kind of component of something. I mean, some ridiculous like. Like, how is this happening? And then, but that's how we have it in our medical, the, you know, the hospitals as well. You go into the hospital and it's one night stay and a hospital is $10,000. Well, how can that be when I can stay across the street in Beverly Hills for $500 a night? You know, so so there's something really wrong with the, with the infrastructure. I think that's greed. It's greed. Like as you mentioned, it's greed. That's, that isn't capitalism anymore. It's human. It's a misappropriation of capital at that point. And it is greed, and, and that has to be legislated um, differently in order to free up. But it doesn't mean those industries disappear. It means those industries have a challenge that they now have to overcome. They now have to find ways to create greater efficiency and add value into the marketplace in order to earn that fair value exchange for their shareholders.
0: There's a lot of marginal uh, decreasing utility. so. Like when you have more of something, when you have like too much more of something, it doesn't become worth that much. So, if you have a Ferrari and then you buy five more, the extra five aren't gonna be of much utility to you. But then, if you took the same million dollars and gave it to a homeless person, he could buy a home and have food, and you know that would be of more utility to him.
1: That that's absolutely correct, and I think that um, philosophy is very much in the fabric of where uh, global developed society is certainly heading and um and really important um you know th- i mean these are extremely important conversations it's always you know since we've been direct messaging through instagram you know your comments are always very insightful uh, given your age um, you know certainly um but uh, thank for you any- you know for anyone to make these kinds of insights i think um, is uh, is something that not a not enough people are really discussing and talking about um, and really accepting that uh, there is a need uh, to to be proactive in this. And I think we are seeing some of that in new congressional leadership um, that has come in in the United States uh, given the last round of midterm elections. We do see a lot of people talking about very radical, Uh, things from an economic standpoint. 70% Um,
0: taxes on wealthy people.
1: Correct. And so, you know, um, do I have any problem with that? Um, In in theory, no. Uh, In execution, absolutely. You know, so that's always the, how do you get there in in a way that continues to uh, support the major provider of Uh, new jobs in the U.S. economy, 70% of new employment comes from small businesses. And so it's a really important driver of of the labor market. Well, if uh, more and more businesses are anyway going to be adopting more technology, which allows them to be more efficient without more human capital, then this is an inevitability that everyone's going to have to deal with anyway. And wealth is only going to further concentrate around those uh, areas where uh, it already has, and the equality, inequality will uh, continue its widening spread. So, so, having a layer of taxation in order to at least make sure people aren't homeless, and you know, okay, so we have a homeless problem here in Los Angeles, for example. Um, well, LA is a very expensive place and um and la like a lot of cities is a tough town a lot of people come to la because they want to be actors they want to be famous they want to you know whatever it is and they show up here and then la chews them up and spits them out and either they go back home somewhere or you know maybe they have a mental break or there's mental illness that demonstrates itself and then people are homeless and so you know, we have a major epidemic here which is why a lot of my philanthropic work has been focused on uh, trying to address and draw attention to uh, homeless due to mental illness uh, because that is certainly an epidemic and I and I don't think it that is disconnected from this conversation I think it's all very much related to the same thematic of income inequality and and how to also foster a healthy environment a healthy society and uh, and really that does go back to consumption and you know what people think they're supposed to be doing uh, to be happy and uh, I will say looking at most of Instagram is probably the thing you shouldn't be doing if you want to be happy because it seems like everybody's living the most beautiful perfect life and all of that is just a facade um, and 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 so so it so it, this is a, really a cultural um, phenomenon and if you look back at many civilizations over the history of mankind, uh, they've all really had their downfall related to similar things. Uh, you know, look at uh, ancient Rome and uh, the vomitoriums, and you know, it's it's like uh, really oh, like nobody can imagine that people used to get together and eat and drink so much until they vomited, and that was like a normal, happy thing that society did. We think that's barbaric, but. You know, really, we're not that much different than our our friends in ancient Rome.
0: And then if you realize, if you get back to the topic of greed, you realize that in 2008, as well as in 1929, the Great Depression. What basically happened was people on Wall Street got greedy and they wanted more money. And so They started bidding stocks up. They started bringing you securitization loans and and they just grabbed high fees for it. And they just wanted to make themselves richer because of greed the same way. Well, that was only wall street so do you think there's going to be uh, there's going to come a time when america gets too greedy and it's going to lead to the collapse of the whole american economy forgetting this wall street
1: uh no i don't think um that is a risk because i am always i always believe in capitalism as a pure philosophy uh, as, a true, as a true socioeconomic philosophy and and in in great capitalism it really is all about fair value in exchange for value add
0: but that that only happens happens when both sides are
1: rational correct and both sides are informed and we have such a disparity that there has to be some kind of um of uh of equalization that or democratization that happens when it comes to um, uh, certainly access to capital and capital uh, making decisions. And I think this is one of the reasons why you see a lot of focus from the SEC or other financial regulators here in the United States who are really um, trying, uh, and I think doing a, a good job nowadays after many, many years of not addressing this, but I think the financial crisis really set mm, a lot of this into high gear now where it it really is about protecting the consumer. And so if the consumer is saving money, you wanna make sure that they're saving money in a way that is accretive, positive, and helpful for that family, not in a way that ultimately it punishes them. Um, and, And our system of checks and balances and, and oversight and regulation, it's very hard to distinguish uh, people who are in the marketplace selling financial products just for personal gain and people who are using financial products as tools to implement good planning. And unfortunately, it's hard to distinguish that because it is unclear when, when people use titles that seem ubiquitous. You know, somebody calls themselves a financial advisor. Well, you could get five financial advisors together in the same room and they could have completely different education backgrounds certification levels licensing there's no stand no single standard of care within the financial services industry when it comes to financial advice Um, although there is a single standard when it comes to the right or a license to sell a product well selling product is like a doctors going around talking about what tools they use in surgery. Well, the tools in surgery, we assume as a society are improving over time, and that you assume your surgeon will use the most advanced tool and the best tool on you. But really, you want that surgeon to have good education, background technique, and understanding so that once they're in there, maybe something happens that isn't that they didn't expect and they have enough experience to be able take to steps. Pivot, take steps to handle that we don't have a standard of care like that in the financial services industry i think that's one of the challenges for people who are looking to invest and have a lot of confidence in the marketplace because it's hard to um to to delineate that and it's one of the reasons why i wrote my first book which is how to hire or sure. hire your financial advisor 10 simple questions to guide decision-making uh, because I really was hopeful that, you know, just to have a checklist of questions to ask uh, somebody who wants to manage your money is helpful uh, because then you at least get to see where some of the uh, conflicts of interest or biases or motivations may reside.
0: And then, but then don't you think like the increase in credit card debt, the significant decrease in credit card debt? I think statistically, I saw some, I, re, I remember reading somewhere that it's equal to how many housing loans there were, I think, in 2006. So it's uh, kind of equal to what there was
1: in 2006, so don't you think that's just American consumer greed? Uh, it, it is all about keeping up with the Joneses. This is uh, the consumer society we live in and, uh, I mean, just think about how ridiculous it is that we actually have most of our co- commercials on Primetime television are uh, medicine. I mean, this is the only country in the world where we're advertising medication. <laughs> I mean, you know, how often are you seeing medication commercials on your television in Canada?
0: Well, we have what? universal healthcare here, so we You're don't right. see that. You
1: don't see it. You don't see it. Here, every other commercial is selling a pill. And that's because the same pill here in the United States costs twenty dollars a pill, in Europe and in Canada costs twenty cents. That's true. You know, so so there is horrible um, inefficiencies uh, that have been allowed to persist, and obviously that is a misappropriation or misallocation of capital.
0: But then, like, from the
1: consumer's pocket from the consumer.
0: But then, like in the US, there are, I think, 400 million people compared to Canada. Canada is, has one tenth the population of the US. And in countries like Norway, Sweden, the UK, it's even lower. So, don't you think it's easier to provide healthcare to, you know, 40 million, 20 million, and 10 million people compared to, uh, say, the US with four, 300 to 400 million people? That's, isn't that just a huge drain on resources?
1: No, no, no doubt. But also the United States has more resources than many of these other countries that you've mentioned. I mean, it has more natural resources, has more human capital resources. I mean, it has more financial resources. I mean, it has all these resources. So it, it actually I mean, technically it's feeding. It was feeding the world for most of the history of the United States. We fed the world. And even to this day, we still most of the food we farm and create is exported. China it relies on us for our soybeans. You know, they can't even grow enough. Curious well. uh, Yeah, so it, it's a very, it is a very, very complicated um, uh, challenge, but one that has to be, um, has to be addressed, and, and one that also can't be punitive to the capitalist spirit. So you wanna be careful about um, punishing someone that does have that drive and desire to add value to society and as a result we get rewarded but you also want to keep checks and balances in place so that it is maybe more like a Japanese capitalist model so that you know sure make somebody making 20 30 times that of the average person that's that's okay you know that that's that's pretty good Uh, making 300 times, is it, can you argue that they're adding 300 times the amount of value? No. It's very hard to make that argument. And so that's where you get into this disproportionate value add. And I think that is what will be difficult because legislators are not naturally uh, economic thinking people. And so they'll need very good uh, economists that understand these concepts. Uh, to help really uh, devise what legislation can look like, so that you don't smother the capitalist spirit, yeah. but, but actually keep it very alive and robust.
0: And Warren Buffett has said, "When managers dig deep to, uh, when managers dig too deep into shareholders' pockets, directors must slap their hands." <laughs> and that proves too. And that proves so true. I
1: I, I agree with that absolutely.
0: And since you brought the topic of trade in China, what do, you th- like, what do you think of trade wars? And do you believe in free trade? And what do you think of, you know, just slapping tariff upon tariff upon tariff? That's just going to ridiculously yeah. impact the economy.
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Um, tariffs, uh, well, so in the study of economics, you, you learn that um, there's deadweight loss in tariffs um, there's, there is this, um, there's a, it's a, a tariff creates inefficiency in the market because now there's a penalty for a certain kind of action. And so tariffs and like any tax is meant to discourage. So this is why people think, oh, if you tax the risk, it'll discourage entrepreneurship That's not true. Entrepreneurs are still going to be entrepreneurs because they still want to add value in the way that they want to in society. You know,
0: and they're willing to work yeah.
1: for it. Yeah, and 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 if somebody's making twenty million dollars a year, okay, maybe it's okay. They pay a little bit more in tax. Somebody who's making a quarter million dollars a year, you know, in our in Los Angeles, that's all not a, almost a living wage. I mean, that's it's you know for a family of four. I mean, it's tough to to live on. A, a, couple of hundred thousand a year in Los Angeles with a family of four, you know, so we've got a lot of disparity, but that same 200 living in Iowa it does very, very well. Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of tariffs in China, uh, I, I mean, I lived in Shanghai for a year uh, in my prior uh, career uh, when I was on the investment banking consultancy, and I uh, dealt a lot with uh, the Chinese uh, in negotiations and Chinese have a, I think, uh, as a society, a certain way of negotiating. Uh, Like many societies, there's there's cultural norms in negotiation, and uh, you have Trump, who has his own way of negotiating. The art of the deal. The (laughs) art of the deal. And the art of the deal. A big core of the art of the deal is brinkmanship. So he's really good at taking something all the way up to and past the acceptable limit of when somebody would think they would ruin a deal completely, he's very comfortable to roll and just steamroll past that point, and the Chinese are too. So you do now have these, these polar opposite forces that have very similar behavior of brinkmanship and disregard for the negotiating process, but at the same time, at the end of the day, they need one another. And obviously China needs the U.S consumer in a much bigger way than the u.s needs the chinese consumer because china imports very little from the united states they're nowhere near our top 10 i mean they're, they're just i mean our top three trading partners are canada mexico and japan you know so that's where 70 plus percent of all of our import uh, all of our exports are going you know so so there's so china is really low on the list i don't know the precise Yeah, they're, it's a small part um but then they're different. the
0: biggest buyer of U.S. bonds, so
1: they are the biggest buyer. But they've had to do that as a way of showing their support. However, and it's funny you mentioned that because the um, the amount I think it's 1.3 trillion of uh, U.S. Treasury de- debt that they hold. Quite a bit of that debt is in the intermediate part of the yield curve, uh, so in the five on average five year uh, maturity range. Well, our yield curve is actually quite flat in the US right now. Short term rates um, are actually longer than some long longer term rates. Uh, one one month uh, T bills three months yeah. Um And once you get to the two year to the 10 year, there's a little bit of a spread maybe around 20 basis points right now. Not much though. So one of my um, one of my uh, investment thesis around uh, bonds and the bond market is that if China actually pursues the nuclear option, which is being referred to and dumping treasuries on the market, maybe they want to sell 10 you know, percent, hundred billion dollars worth of their treasuries in a short period of time. Well, what will that do? It will send treasury prices plummeting. And up. Yields skyrocket. Yeah. Which will actually create a really healthy-looking yield curve, which will increase the margins and spreads in <laughs> the financials, and but then... for the financial sector. So, so from a threat standpoint, it actually will have, I think, the opposite effect, and create a healthier, more normalized uh, money market environment and and just the cost of capital environment. Um, and so, maybe to some extent, the reason why we have such a flat yield curve is because of the activity of China buying too much because they really shouldn't be buying so much of our bonds. We don't really need them to do that. You know, the Federal Reserve is the number one holder of all our, of the bonds of the US. So, you know, it could step in and buy some of that. But I don't even think they need to be buying. It because yeah. we, have, we have a cost of capital issue where our risk free rate in this country is not reflective of a proper normal risk free rate. And um, and you can see that showing up in the in the yields of, uh, bonds, of high yield bonds high yield junk bonds are paying, you know, six percent, you know, in the in the yeah. in the B average market or a B, an average B uh, credit quality rating mutual fund, you know, it's a six percent dividend. Well, six percent, you know, you can go around the world and find a lot of places where you can get that or better with the same or even less risk. So, so there's, there's, there's actually I always, I always see, you know, that or try to see two sides of the argument, and that you know, just because they may have this as a threat, yeah, it could be a threat. It could certainly be disruptive. It certainly will make the stock market very volatile because it will throw a big tantrum. But it really does. It actually, the end game is very healthy uh, for for a cost of capital, which is ultimately the driver for. The, uh, corporate structures where people are cfos are always evaluating their debt and their equity yeah and and so if you're if you're creating a healthier uh, risk-free rate environment it means you'll actually have better risk assessment in the marketplace which means you'll actually get rewarded conceptually better for taking more risk in certain parts of the market um, uh, relative to other parts but right but now then- you don't have that even in treasury bonds. It's, it's yeah, it's at risk to buy treasury bonds today.
0: <laughs> the thing is, due to the high, uh, due to the extremely high volatility, investors have been, you know, shedding, uh, shedding stocks and then been jumping into short-term bonds Correct. and then at these extremely low yields, as China does. In fact, you know, just kick out 10 billion, 100 billion in U.S. treasuries and then they're just going to suffer a massive loss, aren't they?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of risk if you have a buyer that is uh, removing themselves as a buyer and actually becomes a seller. I mean, the Federal Reserve has really removed themselves as a buyer of U.S. treasuries, um, and and that is what they have to do in order to manage according to their outlook. Um, But if you have an external foreign buyer that that reverses course, maybe you get another buyer that shows up. Maybe another uh, country will say, oh, we'll buy more of your... Uh, bonds instead because we want a better relationship with you and that would be opportunistic for another nation to step up and that maybe the EU wants to step up and say hey you know we're gonna start buying your US bonds and by the way we want this trade deal between us that's gonna knock the socks off of the rest of the world and they could do that just like Canada and the EU actually did a great trade deal a few years ago that even included professionals that now don't have all this red tape between their economies. So an architect in Canada, uh, Montreal, can go to Paris yes. and open up a shop. And th- th- this, is, uh, this is the kind of ease of human capital flow that is, I think, the mark of very, very good uh, trade and trade deals. And uh, we really need more of that um, in the marketplace because ultimately, robots are going to make everything anyway anyway, eventually so you want to make sure that and then where they're making that could be anywhere you know when 3d printing is ubiquitous we're gonna you know homes are going to be built on site with all the materials in a bottle and uh, you know everything's gonna come out of that one package and so uh, manufacturing is really going to morph
0: And. And the other day we were talking about how technology has changed the world and how you can now do business virtually from any place. So, assuming the Democrats get elected or something and they do in fact raise their taxes on millionaires from uh, whatever it is now to 70%. Then, don't you think like all of them are just going to fly to Asia, Monaco, Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, uh, maybe not Tokyo, but then yeah, Hong Kong, Singapore and Monaco, they have really low taxes. so. Uh, Don't you think they're just going to flood there immediately, and even maybe even Canada, because that would be 70% compared to Canada's 52%. Is far, far higher.
1: Uh, uh, No question that that tax havens uh, have existed around the world for centuries, and um, and so uh, even and you don't even need to think about it from that level. You can just look at it. What's happening in New York right now. Uh, the New York, uh, you know, state, uh, you know, the Department of Collection of Tax uh, you know, Revenues, they're noticing a big decline in tax collections because so many people have moved to Florida, and 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 so, you know, because now there's there's all these extra taxes, there's um, large, mm-hmm. state, you know, real estate transaction taxes, there's. You know, city tax. I mean, you have taxes upon taxes upon taxes, and taxes are only going up, so people just extricate themselves from it. And if they want to be in New York, they spend just one day shy of six months, and they're not considered a resident. They live somewhere (laughs) else six months out of the year, and that's how people are doing it right now. There's a lot of gaming of the system, and of course, that doesn't help the infrastructure of New York to do that. So, 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 and same thing in California, if California continues on its arc of raising taxes, raising taxes. Well, Nevada is only across the border. Uh, so, you know, people can yeah. go there, people go to Texas. A lot of people have been moving to Texas. And Washington. Yes, and Washington. Seattle. Exactly. So there's a lot of, of, of other places where you can move your business, move your employees, move everyone. Um, and, uh, and, and even have a, maybe even a better quality of life, because there's less congestion and traffic and, and uh, all of those kinds of things. So, so for sure, that has to be a consideration. You can't just impose a higher tax without being able to uh, illustrate what the benefit is to everyone. Yeah. And, So that's where it's going to really get down to what's ultimate benefit. What, you know, so if you know, somebody who's making a hundred million dollars a year, I mean, it's really hard to relate to somebody who's making a hundred million dollars a year. You know, uh, I, I don't know what that, what that is like. Um, And, and if you say as a, as a government, okay, somebody who's making a hundred million dollars a year, that person deserves a 70% tax. On their income, this is going to have 30 million left. That's that's not, and that's a bit egregious, I would say. So you have to have something that's progressive, so you can say, okay, tax rates look a certain way up to some point. You know, so we as a society have to define what is that point. You know, is somebody who's making 10 million a year, you know, is that somebody who's really quite wealthy? I would say that's probably correct. Um, that's probably a delineating. Uh, I think five million seems a little aggressive um, to make that sort of be the 70% tax bracket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I feel like there there is something, and I feel that's where the a lot of the negotiation and legislator has to focus um, is is what is that uh, standard? And because certainly the vast majority of people in the United States. Our, I mean the median income in this country is $166,000 something like that for for a family of 4 in like New York or California yeah. um, you know if you look at median income across the whole country it's something like 60 something thousand yeah. plus <laughs> you know so somebody who's making you know even a million a year it seems crazy um, yeah. but, but I would say that um, you know there is a there is a happy medium from where it is today and then of course you layer on the fact that most corporations are not even paying taxes uh, and making like taxes. Amazon like Amazon great example zero taxes and yeah, you got a tax rebate billions and billions of profits but if you challenge too much of that what are they going to do they're going to find a new uh location and situs well, themselves there run and to hong, hong kong, kong. <laughs> right but it's not like hong kong is going to benefit much more so who benefits ultimately amazon amazon is benefiting from all the employment that is happening on u.s soil and so obviously there's taxation of the earners so no one really is calculating the actual societal benefit of amazon from a value exchange. So I, I think we actually could find out that they're actually adding the right amount of value to society. And the fact that they're not taxed yeah. is okay because they they are actually building um, a lot of efficiency and productivity in, in the economy. So, so that's, but these are interesting points because no one really is talking about the economic implications uh, and value exchange around economics, so it isn't just as clear-cut as saying, "Oh, higher taxes for the rich," because oftentimes the, the rich are deciding the values, that benefit for society.
0: And then to wrap up the interview, if you had to give everyone three tips on investing and on li- and on life, what would they be?
1: Uh, tips on their investing uh, life, their uh, investing, investing
0: life. as well as like being successful in life.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> uh, wow, that's a big, big, big uh, question. I would say that um, um, know, n- be honest about what your uh, own limits are. Um, it, it, it's I think it's too easy to um, create false positives in our own decision-making process. So if you don't know. Be honest and open about it and find the answer. Research, ask, look, find a mentor, find a coach, uh, someone that can give you uh, the better information or perspective. I I think that's a really important uh, element of success in life or in investing. Um, The other thing is know when to uh, acknowledge failure. and when uh, you have an idea or you're headed down a path and it isn't working out the way you thought it's okay if it doesn't work out for a period of time because oftentimes really great things have a lot of challenge and struggle in the in the early period that may be weeks or years in some cases and so the dedication um, it means being to persevere but don't throw good money or good time after bad You know, so, so you do have to know when to abandon ship. Yeah. Uh, And then the other third is have a discipline. Um, If you're disciplined in life, you know, whether it's diet, exercise, whether it's investing and you have a discipline of, of what is, you know, what's your criteria and you have a specific idea of what's a buy versus a sell versus a rebalance, those kinds of things. You know and you're committed to that discipline you will always find success with discipline the failures in investing mostly come from an a lack of discipline. of discipline
0: thank you so much for being on my podcast
1: my pleasure very much Javonson. thank you so much take care